I got to tell you, this study has been a struggle for me. Normally, this is a subject material I'm familiar with. Um, I've studied it for 30 plus years. I'm not going into great depth, but enough to where I feel like we need. But this study has, I've been wrestling with. I don't know why. And I, I actually thank the Lord for it because when there's a struggle, that means there's something that needs to be said or important, or it needs to be thrown out. So one of the, one of the two is going to happen today. But I did. I, I must have changed this thing three or four times. Finally, I said, Lord, i got to settle on this, whatever it is that you want for, for your people today, including myself. We're going to deal with a pretty serious subject, not as serious as next week. Next week, I really want to encourage you to, to be here because I want you to strap on your spiritual seatbelts. We're in for a ride. We're going to be talking about deception and apostasy, the real world that we're living in and what we're seeing. But today is really important to set us up with about the power and the influence of the spirit realm. You know, there's a working going on. We've been talking about this for two weeks. So I, I don't need to reinstate all that information we talked about, but it's real. Paul warned about it. We're told to be careful, to stand, to be soldiers, and we can't take this lightly. But we're going to be affected. We'll be impacted. Our testimony, our witness, our actions, our words, everything is affected by the spiritual realm and, and what goes on behind the scenes that we often don't see. Um, but in this case, we're going to look at a, a case study here in Matthew chapter 16 with uh, the disciples. And uh, most of you are familiar with this, this portion of Scripture in Matthew 16, where uh, Jesus asked the disciples a simple question, whom do you say that I am? And Peter boldly declares, thou art the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus you know, immediately tells Peter, for flesh and blood hath not revealed that to you, unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. So he got something. If you're going to get something from God, you're going to get it from, if you're going to get something in the Word of God that's going to affect your life, it's from God. He's the one who reveals truth. He's the only one who reveals truth. I can get up here and talk, Throw out a thousand verses. It won't mean a thing unless the Holy Spirit gives you understanding. He's the one who anoints you. And so here we see, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus commends him for something that God gave him, the Father gave him. But moments later, moments later, Jesus starts talking about going to Jerusalem, suffering at the hands of men, going to the cross, something very born to the disciples when they hear that, and then rising again after his death for three, in three days. And what does Peter say? Be it far from thee, Lord. That's, I'm not going to let that happen. How did he go from this being spiritually minded to extremely carnal minded and trying to hold the Lord back from going to the cross? It's because of the influence and power of Satan. Jesus gets right to the source. I mean, he doesn't hesitate to get to the source of Peter's thinking. He says to Peter, Be it far. Peter says this, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. And what does Jesus say? Gets right to the source. 
Get thee behind me, Satan. So we see the working. In one hand, we see God the Father revealing truth, and that we see the resistance happening right there. In that moment, in that very setting, we see Satan coming in and influencing Peter's thinking. Now, Peter's thoughts had already been shaped. Now, he was looking for a king. He's looking for a physical kingdom. He's looking, and when the king starts talking about, I'm going to die, he's like, whoa, that, that can't be because that's how he's thinking. He was shaped by this thought process. And then Satan used that thinking to influence him and oppose Christ. And Jesus gets right to the matter. Get thee behind me, Satan. See how quickly someone can go from a spiritually minded person to very carnal minded. And this is why this gets to the very core essence of spiritual warfare. What Paul wrote about in Ephesians 6, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers. They are against you. They oppose you, and they are doing everything they can to get you weakened in your faith and to get you opposed to God. But we're called to stand, resist, and learn how to deal with these matters. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning and give some real insight, hopefully, to what that means in regards to fighting this spiritual warfare. And these spiritual weapons we're going to talk about is outlined for us clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses uh, 3 through 5. Now, before we get into that, I want everybody to know whether you're a newborn Christian or you're a mature Christian believer, or you're going into the battle for the first time. Now, I think most of you are, are more seasoned soldiers who have been in this battle. It makes no difference that we're all susceptible, all of us, no matter where we are in our level of spirituality, we're all susceptible to the very same trap that Peter fell into. Because of our thinking and our thoughts and how they've been shaped and what we've learned. So let's look at how do we resist that? How do we deal with those thoughts that are contrary to God and to the thinking of God? In 2 Corinthians, here, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not physical in nature. But look at this. Mighty through God. Not through us, but through God. These weapons are from God and through God. To the, here he says, to the pulling down of strongholds. That's, the, that's one of the first weapons. The pulling down of strongholds. We'll talk about what that means. The casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. And bring every thought to the obedience of Christ. Before I give you the definitions of what that all means, all of us, our worldview, our value system, our belief system is shaped by the things we've learned, who we've learned it from, who we've trusted to learn it from. It's shaped by the traditions we were raised with and the things that we understood under those traditions, the biases that we hold, our emotional character and, and makeup. All of this, and our experiences, by the way, all of that's wrapped up into how we think, and it shapes our worldview. And what God does is He cuts through all that minutia in our lives, our thought processes and 
our way of thinking, and he cuts through that to get us to line up with his way of thinking and his thoughts and his will. And this is a process that can be often painful and humbling because you've been raised or you think one way and then God says that is improper, that's ungodly, that's wicked, or that's not right. And we, and we have to come to that conclusion to take it down. That's what the pulling down of strongholds means. It literally means the demolishing of castle walls or the demolishing of stone walls that make up a fortress. Our thinking throughout life builds these walls and God comes around now and then and He tries to break those walls down by giving you the ability to do it. But this is true even as believers. This is a process that we have to all, we're always changing our thinking. We're learning from God and learning about God. And so these, these strongholds are very real. So pulling down, is, and he's giving us the, the very definition of these spiritual weapons that we've got to learn to demo some of our thinking, the fortresses of our thinking. Like Peter's thinking was, you're a king, you're not going to die. And God took the hammer and he said, get behind these Satan." He destroyed that type of thinking that came from evil. And then the casting down imaginations is once again, same principle of taking down and pulling down things that we think about that aren't real. And then casting down every high thing, anything that puts itself above God, including ourselves, has to come down. It has to be brought down into the knowledge of God. And then all that God uses to bring under the obedience of Christ. You want to know if you're walking with God? It's when you're obedient to God. When you're willing to do something that's very contrary to what you feel and what you think. That's really what obedience is. It's like, if God says do this, and I say, whoa, whoa, that doesn't make sense, but God says it, then I've got a fortress, I've got a thought process that's not coming from God. It has to be demolished. So how do we do, how do we change our thinking or or, or resist the influence of improper thinking that doesn't line up with God. Well, listen to this verse here. This is beautiful in Jeremiah 23. Is not my word like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? When you get down to it, we need this book so bad every day in our life because this is the book that lines us up with God. If I put this book aside and I go, well, I think God says this, and I think God teaches that, and I think God, you are in a world of trouble. Get ready. The battles, you're going to get taken down so fast. It's that book or it's nothing else. Now you, got, you understand why we got a pastor who's constantly, he's begging us to get in the Word and read it all the time. And, and there's a reason for that because it shapes and influences our thinking. And it takes away those fortresses that we build up over time that shaped our views that need to be broken down, like Peter's. Man, the last thing any of us would want to hear is our Savior, our best friend, telling us, get behind thee, Satan. But he did to Peter, because he's trying to get Peter to realize your thinking's wrong, and my word will break that type of thought process. It's no wonder we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, for the Word of God is quick. You know what that word means? 
in the English? Alive. This book's alive. No wonder people are scared to death of it. Just put this book anywhere near you in a public setting and watch what happens. The book's alive and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It can cut through all that minutia in your life. And then it says, you know, dividing, you know, piercing even through the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, the spiritual things of a makeup of man, and is a and the joints and marrow, the physical part, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You can't even discern the thoughts and intents. Why? Because the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? God tries the rain. So what he does is he takes the word, he pulls out those things, and he says it's it's got to go. And you're and in obedience, you pull it down and you cast it and you move on and you get in line with God. It's no wonder Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, and be not what? Conformed to this world. Too many Christians are conforming to the world when we're told not to conform. And how do we not conform? Be ye transformed. By the renewing of your mind. How is the renewing of the mind? The constant washing of the Word of God. The constant flow of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. Man, get yourself under the teaching, preaching, and your own personal, God changed my thinking. Well, I've been in the battle for 30 years. What do I need to change? Oh, man. Seriously? I know I've thought that way. Like, I got this. No, I don't have this. Because just as much as I'm spirit, I can be spiritual, I can be carnal in the, next, in the next sentence and go, man, alive, I cannot believe I just said that. So, all this is to really get us to realize the spiritual, the spiritual weapons that we need. So what I'm going to do is something different than I normally do. And I've got a lot to study in regards to the spirit realm. But... I wanted to take time to kind of walk through what are considered common strongholds in today's world. Now, this includes believers and unbelievers. And then I'm going to kind of walk you through how we need to address that or what the Scripture, what saith the Lord regarding a stronghold and what they look like. Now, there's thousands of them, so there's no way we're going to sit here and go through that many. But we're going to go through a few, a a laundry list, I call it, and it'll really get us thinking about how we tend to think sometimes. And the first one is really about Christians. This isn't about unsaved people. We, that's just a give me. They think they can earn God's favor. But Christians get saved and somehow they get into this brownie point system with God. Okay, if I do this for God, then I get one for, from God. Maybe it'll offset, if I do something bad, it'll offset you know, with this good. And we get to thinking somehow there's a brownie point system. Do this, I get that. What we fail to realize is the Scriptures teach us that we are the recipients of the grace of God. Therefore, we do good works. We're not in a point system. God just wants obedience according to His Word. But again, you know, God, it's God which worketh in us and through us to, to perform His will and to do of His good pleasure. We don't have any ability to do that. So really, it's we're the recipients of grace. I go to church not to get grace. I go to church because of grace. I read my Bible not to get grace, but because I have grace. It, it, that, that's the thinking that has to happen. And 
you see Christians are constantly working for God as if they get something from God. They've already got it. You're, you've already got all the heavenly blessings, according to Ephesians 1, that, that you need for all of your life. All godliness, all the promises of God are yours. Now go out and do something for God and let yourself experience those, the blessings of those, but not to earn it, but we do. And that's a fortress for too many people. God is love and would never send someone to hell. This is the God is love crowd that wants to reject truth. They they want a God who's love at the expense of truth. They don't understand the justice of God and how God cannot sidestep truth and righteousness and holiness. He has to deal with it. So much so, we all have to look to the cross and to know how He deals with sin. Somebody says God can't hate. Look at the cross and what He allowed His Son to do for us. It says that in Hebrews chapter 1, I believe, verse 8, it says, he, uh, he loveth righteousness and hateth iniquity. Now, he that believeth on the Son of God hath life. He that believeth not on the Son of God hath not life. Now, watch this. But the wrath of God abideth on him. Now, if the wrath of God abides you, on you because of sin, you haven't been, you've been, he did the work, but you've rejected it. Now the wrath abides. That's God's punishment. Guess where that, that wrath's going to finally find its place? In the lake of fire. Because the, all the wrath of God is revealed in the lake of fire for eternity. That's where He's going he's gonna to display His wrath for all eternity. So if the wrath of God's abiding on someone and they die in that sin with God's wrath, where do they end up? In the lake of fire. So God ultimately allows them to go to hell. Now, does God send them to hell or do they send themselves to hell? God did the love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Now this is a classic Calvinist debate. We're not Calvinists, uh, but certainly uh, they're, they're a dime a dozen these days. God died for the elect. All others are elected to hell. So God has every aspect of your life... He, you, you know, you can't believe he's going to do it for you and all. I'm not getting into the Calvinism. But when you read Scripture, you'll find that, like Paul says to Timothy, the preacher, uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, I believe, uh, who will have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of God? Who will have all men? That's God's desire. Who will have all? Now, here's what the, the Calvinists say. All means the elect of God. Not everybody, not all-inclusive. See how they just they take words and they start to interpolate, oh, that's what it really means. But that's not what it means. Because you see that uh, in 2 Peter chapter 3, that um, God is not willing that any should re- re- perish, but all should come. All is all. It's not all for the elect. And this is a thought process that has literally destroyed parts of Christianity because it keeps people from ever, well, I can't say, I can't, why witness? God's already elected them. They're going to get saved anyways. What's, the, what's it matter? That's not, that's not an in-depth study on Calvinism. I just wanted to bring that to the fortresses that are out there. The seven days of creation are not to be taken literally. How many times have you heard that? I don't know about you, but when it says evening and morning, I just think I just read into that as evening and morning. Well, how about you? I don't see evening and morning means a thousand years. 
I don't see evening and morning means an unlimited, unspecified time that goes on for evolutions. No. Evening and morning means evening and morning. If, if Genesis 1 through 3 is not literal, let's just assume that for a minute, then what else is not literal in the scriptures? And by the way, who's going to be the judge of what's literal and what's not literal? You? Me? Or some scholar who has some authority because he's studied all his life and says, well, it's not literal, so you got to believe what I'm about to tell you. That's dangerous. The seven days of, of creation are literal, as, as stated in the Scripture. God doesn't state it any other way. So we have to believe. You know, really what people are saying, God is not that big to create and do something that He can speak the Word and it happens. Well, in Revelation 19, when He comes back to destroy all His enemies, the Bible says He speaks the Word and it happens. That's all it takes for God. To speak the word. So it takes faith. Yes, I get it. But when people don't have faith, this is where they go. Oh, you can't take that literally. Jonah and the big fish was figurative Jewish poetry. That's a popular one in modern day scholars. But here's a problem you're going to have with that because Jesus didn't agree with that. Because I'm going to give one sign to Israel. One sign. Because they sought, sought for signs. They were a nation that was seeking signs all the time. And that for good reason. But Jesus said, I'm going to give you one sign, the sign of Jonas. As Jonas was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. What's hard about that? It's very clear to us he meant three days and three nights. And if Jesus was saying, that's going to happen to me literally, why didn't it happen to Jonah? Now here's a way it works for me. And I hope for you, if God said that Jonah swallowed the big whale, I'd believe it. Say, well, that's foolish. Well, we'll sort that out at the judgment seat of Christ and when we see God. Because it won't be so foolish then. But today, it's easy to go, ah, that's just Jewish poetry. I read that the other day where someone was like, oh, all the Old Testament, all that. So you can't really get, you can't take that little. That's all Jewish poetry. Science trumps the Bible. Whew. How many times have you heard that? How about the Bible trumps science? Now, for those of you who come Wednesdays, you're blessed. And, I, I, you know, not everybody can make Wednesdays. And for different reasons, you're involved in other ministry. But Nick comes up here and he, he does excerpts from, what's the name of the book? Things that are considered. Things that are considered. Phenomenal. And I could preach... I could just, I want to take all that stuff and just start preaching on it. And he's had a couple, but one that really hit home. I mean, just how God designs and creates and, and his power. And he talked about the turtle loggerheads. You know, those things that look like mini coopers that flow through the water. Did you know that they leave Japan and travel 8,000 miles to Baja, California, to a specific place, they nest, and at, uh, when they are sexually mature and they, they hatch, they leave and go all the way back to the same spot they left 8,000 miles away in Japan, to the same spot. You say, scientists now are catching up and figuring out, how do they do that? It's like they got a compass on their head. There's something on the way they're designed that has a compass that allows them to navigate through all those waters, all, that, all the, the things in the sea, to go to one from A to B and back to A. You tell me there's not a God out there. 
Science will eventually catch up with the Bible, we always say. Paul instructed Timothy to be careful of, you know, the science, uh, uh, oppositions of science falsely so-called. Science is always a moving target. We all know this, just look at what happened in COVID. Follow the science. Now, it's not so much follow the science. Oh, you know, and it's always low-key now. It's under the radar, but hey, this might not have been right. Hey, this might have been a problem. And by the way, you know, people are dropping dead. We don't know why, but it might be related to. So science says, follow the science. We're the experts. It's the same thing with scholars who attack the Word of God. I'm a scholar, so you've got to believe me. That, oh, those are foundations that need to be demolished. And just follow the Bible. Now, I'm not saying science is bad. I'm just saying it's when science tries to reject the Word of God, it's, it's a problem. There's no need to attend church. Now, obviously not to this group here, but since you can worship God anytime, anywhere. How many have heard that? I don't know if people are lazy. I don't know what's going on, but there's no need to attend church. The very definition of church is ecclesia, which means a called out assembly. We right now are a call. We all left our homes, called out, and we assembled. We're together as one group. Yes, we all belong to the body of Christ, no matter where we are in life and what we're doing. Yes, and you can worship God. In any, but, but church itself, the definition, is a called out assembly. And, and so anybody that says, I don't need to attend church, doesn't understand the very meaning and purpose of church. Get my glasses on here. A little late for that, I guess. This goes hand in hand with what's next. Online church is the same as attending church. Now, folks, I'm not against online uh, church at all, uh, at, at least for people that need it. There's a purpose for it. I mean, Maryland's watching right now. Hi, Maryland. And others, they, they have reasons they can't make it, can't go to church, and that's a good thing. But when online church replaces church, the assembling of believers, that's a problem with God. That's a real problem. And, you know, uh, you'd have to reject 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to, to convince me that online church is acceptable to God. That is all time, there's no need. That is, all of us would sit around in our pajamas, not gathering. How in the world is God going to function through the church with his people? Because 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says he sets every member in the body with a purpose. You're an eye, I'm a mouthpiece, you're an ear, you're a toe, you're a finger. He has all the moving parts to make the body work and function as one. Well, how does that happen if you're in your pajamas at home and nobody's connected? It doesn't work. So again, it's a, it, this is becoming mainstream. I mean, this is big mainstream now. People are not going to church anymore because of, they say online's good enough. This is why I'm trying to, I know it's not this crowd, but man, there's a younger generation up there that is taking on the, this fortress, this type of thinking that's from Satan. He does not want us under gathering together as believers. Okay, this is, this is going to be... Shacking up before marriage is acceptable as long as I plan to marry them. Now, I know that's not popular teaching today, uh, but it, it is with God. He takes this really serious. Um, marriage is honorable in the bed undefiled, but all whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. I didn't say that. God did. Hebrews 12, verse 4. 
If you read the, God has nine lists, I believe it's nine, don't hold me to it, but nine lists where he groups sin together. He just lists them, you know, a bunch of sins. And he does that nine times. When you go through most of those lists, guess what makes the top of the list? Fornication, adultery, uncleanness, lasciviousness, all pornography. All those things fall into the top of God's sin list. Now, that doesn't mean it's the worst sins. I'm just saying it just seems to make the top of the list. For whatever reason, the Holy Spirit said, write it first. Fornication. And, and so, God didn't set it up the way to just live together and then you'll figure it out. Hey, well, I know I'm going to marry this person, then why don't you? That's what God would say. Well, I'm not ready for that. I'm, I don't have enough money. Oh, stop. Stand. i got to stop while I'm ahead here. Any translation of the Bible will do. That's not true. And we don't, we don't have time to even go, go into how serious that is. But let's take an example of the King James Bible, which we use as the, uh, uh, God's preserved Word of God for the English-speaking people. And compared to the NIV, which was built in, you know, re- re- rewrote uh, in the 60s. And they wanted a clearer translation. How, you know, it's, everybody wants a clearer translation. What's wrong with it? Isn't the Holy Spirit the one to make it clearer? So a clearer translation. Well, it turns out they make at least 5,200 word changes in the New Testament alone from the NIV. They omit 16 verses altogether in the NIV. I'm just giving you an example. All the new Bibles, all, without exception, remove 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, which, by the way, thousands of texts agree on this. God was manifest in the flesh. That makes it very clear who Jesus was. God was manifest in the flesh. All the new Bibles, all the new translations don't use the word God. They eliminate it. They put He. He can be a lot. He can be an angel. He can be anything you want it to be. So again, you say, well, you know, no, that's just how it is. You got to be careful those little subtle things. And and so people go around, well, I I can read this and I can read that. If everybody's reading different Bible, we're going to have a problem. It's going to, they're all going to say something different. So moving on to that, but translations do matter. You are suffering because you must have sin in your life. How many times have you heard that before? Well, you must have sin in your life, you know. You're going through, I mean, brother, your house has been demolished, and now you're rebuilding. You must have sin in your life, brother. (laughs) See, at least you're honest about it. (laughs) So do I, right? We all have sin. To say, oh, I have no sin, we make him a liar. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So, yeah, that part, but you're saying because you got real serious sin you're not dealing with. That's not true. Now, it can be true, but a lot of our suffering is just God molding us. Jeremiah 17, take time to read that. He takes the potter, he goes, I want to teach you a lesson. Look at the potter. He goes down there and he looks at the potter and he's, he's making a vessel. And it says he breaks the vessel and he remolds the vessel into another vessel. And God says, can I do that with you? With the house of Israel? God tends to break us at times, which causes suffering because He's molding us to be like Him. He's taking our thoughts and our actions and our ways and our behavior and He's breaking it through suffering to get us in line with Him. 
in those fortresses, sometimes we fight back, but that's, that's definitely not true all the time. Uh, let the young sow their oats. We did, and we turned out just fine. Parents who look at their kids and say, well, they don't really need any direction. They don't need this. They don't need, let, let them figure it out. That's dangerous territory. We know that as parents, but we have kids that are parents now, and we're trying to tell them, don't just let your kid grow up to be cowboys. I mean, come on. You got to let your kid, you got to train them in the way they should go, in the way of the Lord, so when they're old, they won't depart from it. Now, we may turn out okay, but I can tell you we have a lot of scars to show for it. Self-esteem is an individual's most important priority. Stop it. Self-esteem. God says you got to die to yourself daily. How's that for self-esteem? Uh, God's got a sense of humor, isn't he? Oh, forget about your self-esteem. Quit worrying about you. Worry about me and what I'm going to do for you. And he says, you know, we got, we're worrying about our bodies. We're worrying. I mean, we, we, we need to take care of our bodies. And we need to care about ourselves. God says you're to love yourself. Love your wife like you love yourself. And that's not what I'm talking about here. Self-esteem is how, like I'm so important. Like I got to have everything working. And God says you got to quit worrying about that and die to yourself. Die to yourself. That's something that Paul said, I die daily. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, I believe. I die daily. All right, we're getting through this list. Drinking alcohol is not an issue as long as you don't get drunk. I, I laughed about that one. But, uh, I mean, I, you know, in the days when I drank alcohol, it wasn't certainly to sip on it, man. <laughs> it was to get a buzz to, at minimum. Okay? Now, some people are like, oh, Here's the way people would justify this all the time, all day long. Oh, I drink, but I don't get drunk. Here's the way I, I'm going to approach this verse to help. There are a lot of young believers and even older believers that have struggled with alcohol. And I may say, well, I have the freedom to do that. But if that young believer or struggling believer sees me drinking, a more mature saint, because I think I have the freedom to do that, I might affect their conscience and say, well, if it's okay for him, it's okay for me, and may take that brother down or sister. This is why Paul wrote in that context, if meat makes my brother to be offended, then as long as the world's standing, I won't eat meat. Now that's the approach. So if if alcohol will make my brother offended or offends them and causes them their weak conscience to, to hurt them, then I won't drink it as long as the world stands. See, that's a better approach than trying to argue every angle of why alcohol is not appropriate. Be ye filled, be not drunk on wine where it is excess, but be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. The church has replaced Israel in Scripture. I'm going to deal with that at another time. God is a gender neutral person. I, we're laughing, right? It's just crazy. I, I have the article. I didn't bring it in. Church of England this week has decided to put a committee together, and they're moving. It's going to happen. They're going to change God to an it. He's no longer a father. He's no longer he. They, th they think it's done irreparable damage because of the misogyny or the fact he's a male figure. That is, that is not inclusive. And they need to make God more inclusive. Well, God can be a mother, but He's a father. He has a, you know, He talks about Israel being on His knee 
and weaning them. So there's pictures, a hen gathering her chickens. I mean, but God is a father, and he is a he. We're not going to change that just because we want a woke society that wants to, this, this fortress, this thinking that's coming from Satan, and yet it'll permeate our churches. Watch what happens. Church of England goes, and next thing you know, they're debating it. It's like homosexuality and all the other stuff they're debating now. There is no debate. There's none. It is cut and dry. God makes it clear, black or white. And it's our fortresses that are keeping these things from submitting to God and obeying God. God is not gender. Jesus Christ was a male. He was not a trans. He wasn't a female with male tendencies. And this is crazy that we're thinking... But this is permeating. Watch, 20 years from now, if the Lord decides to tarry where the thought process is on this stuff. We'll be, how did we get here? We're already saying it now. What, imagine 10, 20 years from now. Sexual perversions are genetic, not a choice. I was born this way. Romans 1 has a real issue with that. Romans 1 says, God turned them over. Why? Because they made a decision to be perverse. God gave them, God turned them over, God turned them over, and then the Bible says God gave them up. To what? A reprobate mind to do the things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, sexual perversions. This comes back to not genetics, but to choices. But the fortresses today, and the thinking is, it's genetic. Science says we were born this way. I cannot even begin to tell you what I have been studying about gender, uh, all this stuff with gender, um, what do they call that, dysphoria, where kids today, I'm going to have to share at some point what's going on. This stuff is unbelievable, what's happening in our country, and it's just, just the beginning of the evil permeating our society. And it's going after our grandchildren and our youngest children. That's where it's affecting them the most. All right. If you give faithfully, you'd be healthy and wealthy. You know why we give faithfully? Because God's given us all everything. We all need. I'm not given to get something from God. I I hope not. That would be a sin to me. Like, okay, God, I'm going to give you this. I'm going to write this check out now, God. Come on now. Let's let's hand up. Let's hand it over. I, I deserve something for that. How about... Lord, I'm giving this to you because you've been so good to me and loved me. And even if you, you decide I, I'm not going to have this or that, that's okay because I'm just doing what's right and what you called me to do. But never, if you give faithful, you be healthy and wealthy. And the last thing, preaching about sin is hate-filled language. I'm in trouble. I'm three minutes past. Preaching about sin is hate-filled language. All that means is the preacher stepped on my toes about my sin and now I can't stand them. And so he's a hate-filled preacher. <laughs> may that not be the case for any of us, but may realize the fortresses, even in our own life, that we need to take and we need to pull down. And this is a battle we've got to continually do with the Word of God. So with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we've had to share together as your people. Thank you for all our visitors and everyone that came hungering and thirsting for righteousness. May they be filled and may the word of God uh, work mightily in our heart through the spirit of God and be with our pastor, be with us that we may hear what the spirit hath to say to the church today. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church Bonita Springs, Florida. Also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you, and God bless.